I have a cloud of mist to walk into this morning. Good morning, Crossroads Church. I am John Gross. I'm a pastoral resident here, and it is my happy privilege to be preaching here this morning. Today, I once again have a little bit of a weird sermon. The title in our archive for this sermon is going to be Digital Friends because I'm going to be preaching today on social media. We're continuing our series on friendship, and today we're looking at this very real component of friendship in the year 2023, which is the fact that a lot of our interactions with our friends are mediated through various digital platforms. So what do we do with that? Now, I, I haven't added a lot of you on my social media platforms don't take that personally. It's just because I happen to have had a bit of a strange relationship with social media since about 2020. So you remember what 2020 was like and what it would have been like to engage with any social media platform. First of all, you're just cooped up in COVID land, so that wasn't fun. You have extra inclination to be in whatever digital worlds you have access to. And then you had everybody yelling and bickering about the COVID situation. There was also America having yet another racial reckoning at the time, and also it was an election year. That was kind of the perfect storm for me to realize, okay, this whole social media thing, this is a mess. I am not sure how sustainable it's going to be for me to continue to have this in my life. So at the time, my predominant social media platform was Facebook. And so I was like, okay, there is a biblical precedent for 40-day fasts. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to deactivate my account. I'm going to stay away from Facebook for 40 days. Well, that worked all right for the first week. And as many would predict happened about, on, it was the, day, the eighth day of this 40-day fast. I was like, all right, I, I just broke down. I reactivated my account and I logged into Facebook. And for some reason, being away from it for just over a week gave me the clarity of mind to see that this clip from Star Trek I'm very excited to share with you. Perfectly encapsulated. Oh, yes. I hate this. It is revolting. More? Please. Okay, so that was how I felt about Facebook. Was I, I realized in a few minutes as I was scrolling, I was like, actually, I don't like any of this. I'm feeling really frowny face and sad about life, the universe, and everything. And then from then, it was really easy to finish out the 40 days. In fact, I deactivated my account again and didn't get back into it until early 2023. And of course, by now, so many of the people who made Facebook a thing that I wanted to be a part of, uh, they're, they're not on it anymore. And so now Facebook doesn't have that grip on me that it used to. But the thing is, is that that experience of, I have a social media account, I want to get away from it, but it still has this grip on me. That's something that I imagine a lot of us have experienced at some way, at some time, some way or other. And so what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about how and why social media always seems to carry this 
extra baggage attached to it. We get into it because we want a few things, and then what we get out of it is a whole bunch of extra things. So today we're going to talk about why that is. Then we're going to talk about how that really is kind of altering the way that we engage with our world more broadly. And then after talking about that, we're going to get into the Bible piece. So today we're going to talk a little bit about Daniel chapter 1, which is the beginning of the book of Daniel, a.k.a. probably the most direct anti-empire book in the Bible. Now, the reason why we're going to be getting into Daniel, why we're going to be getting into a book that addresses the topic of empire, that's something where I need to kind of do a lot of setup. So we're going to have a lot of talking about social media and the attention economy and how all of that works before we get into the Bible pieces. But trust me, we're going to get there. Okay, so first, I want to talk a little bit about this phenomenon that a lot of us seem to experience where we get into a digital media platform for one reason, and then we get some more things out of it. <clears throat> so, we get on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or YouTube, really, and any kind of social media platform, and we're thinking like, okay, I want to connect to friends, I want to connect to family, especially the friends and family who might not be geographically close to me. Those are pretty normal and wholesome goals. And then what happens is unless we're extraordinarily disciplined about regularly culling our follower lists or going into the special mode, not the default mode, by the way, where we're only seeing content from things that we follow, unless we do these special disciplines, we get a whole bunch of extra content, very often from things we never even signed up for. We want to interact with people. We want to have conversations. We want to show appreciation and receive appreciation. Uh, but then what happens is the interaction that happens in the digital world has a weird way of eventually taxing and taking away from the face-to-face -face interactions that we could have with the people around us. And very often, those face-to-face -face interactions are actually what's most satisfying for us. It really has to be like a phone call or a FaceTime call. That's about the highest level of digital mediation you can get for an interaction to actually satisfy you in a way psychologically similar to an in-person interaction. Most of what we do in our digital spheres doesn't actually work that way. It doesn't have that real-time component to it. A lot of us get into our social media feeds, or maybe we stay into them because we want to be informed. We want to know what the latest celebrities are doing. A nerd like me is going to want to know the latest updates about whatever is going on with Star Trek. Like, we get into these things because we want to be informed about the world. And then what happens is we have conversations with someone. This could be in real life, this could be digitally mediated, where we find out that this other person is getting news completely different than the news that we're getting, because in fact, they are. And we have this moment of realizing that in our quest to be better informed, either I or the person I'm talking to who thinks radically different things, at least one of us is dramatically misinformed. Maybe both. 
We get into social media platforms because we want to tell people what we think. We want to state our ideas. We want to uh, know, and we also want to be known. And then what happens is comment sections kind of devolve into these little rap battle types of fights where you have two sides of a debate and each side is getting a little extra feisty because you know if you're feisty, then you're gonna get the applause and you're gonna get the likes and it's gonna stir up a little more kudos for you. And so it's this thing that we do where we want one thing and then we get something out of it. It's kind of like there's some sneaky little something or other in those terms and conditions that we always agree without reading. Um, and the reality is that's actually exactly what is going on. See, we get into our social media platforms because we have one set of interests related to being connected, being informed, being known, and also knowing others. We have all these interests going in, but the reality is, is that the architects of the platforms, they have separate interests. Their interest is to make money chiefly through ads, like the ad for this dope uh, ejecting wallet that I absolutely did buy because I saw it in an Instagram targeted ad. These things work, by the way, and that's it's upsetting to admit, but it's true. And the reason, and, and so what happens is like, we want one thing, but the architects of these platforms, they have a different set of goals and they're able to structure the platforms to favor their goals while making it look like our goals are being satisfied. Now, what is the goal of a social media platform? Well, the goal is to capture your time and attention. Social media platforms participate in what people call the attention economy. It's basically advertising, except it's a little more aggressive than the advertising that's existed for decades in television and magazines. An old adage about advertising is that you're always wasting at least half your money, you just never know which half. But the thing is, in our digital age, where people can capture a lot of personalized data about someone, the percentage of your ad efforts that are wasted is going to be a lot lower. For example, like Instagram knows that showing me the cool eject button wallet's going to work because they have a whole bunch of information about me based on the things that I've liked and clicked on and so forth. So basically, social media is a large advertisement engine, which means there is a financial incentive to keep pulling in your attention and to keep pulling in your time. And the people who make these platforms are able to build them in such a way so that the floor is always tilted, it's always rolling downhill towards you just giving a little bit more of your time and attention. Jaron Lanier, he's a bit of a renaissance man. He's the father of virtual reality, and now he writes books on these topics. He uses this acronym called BUMMER to explain the engine that animates the attention economy. BUMMER is an acronym. It means behavior of users modified and made into an empire for rent behavior of users modified and made into an empire for rent. This is the engine underneath the attention economy and different digital media formats participate with this in various kinds of ways. Uh, video games that are kind of older, they can be time vacuums, I can admit to that. But the thing is, they're, the, the games themselves, there's not a financial, once you buy the game, that's the end of the financial incentive. 
Uh, more modern games, though, they have something where there's an incentive for you to keep playing and to keep buying more and more. Social media platforms, the way they pay for themselves is just by you being on the platform all the time. So they're really tilted towards taking in your time and attention. So here's how some of this attention economy, attention extraction works. Basically, every feature of a social media platform is optimized to take more of your attention. They have psychologists who have studied which colors, which layouts, which aesthetic designs are going to be most attention grabbing, and then they favor those in the way that they build the platforms. If you've noticed that Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, you can scroll forever. You can just keep going and going and going and never actually reach the bottom of it because it'll always find new content to recycle and put in front of you. That's infinite scroll. That's an innovation designed to keep your attention and time on the platform. And there's uh, low friction feedback. So all you gotta do is click like instead of you know, thinking of thoughts to say to say to someone in order to give feedback. So people can rack up likes that were given as simply as a, as a push of a button. And so what that does is that drives up the engagement, that drives up the incentive for people to put in content. And that drives up the incentive for people to stay on the platform. And then there's this phenomenon, the psychology of the intermittent variable reward, where every time you get onto one of these platforms, you may or may not see something that either validates you or interests you. And if every time you got onto a platform, you knew what you were getting and it was going to be a cool thing to you, you'd actually get bored with it pretty quickly. But that little snippet of mystery being like, oh, hey, is someone going to have uh, liked or replied to a comment of mine? I don't know. Um, what do people think of this video or this meme that I posted? Well, let's go find out. That little bit of mystery has a way of pulling you into the platform again and again. The fact that it defaults towards having notifications turned on, pinging your phone, that kind of thing. That's another invention that keeps you glued to the platform. Now, in many ways, trying to capture your attention, it does have a negative effect on you. In some ways, you could say that the negative effect is just limited to making time management harder. But the negative effect is actually more problematic than that. See. When you're optimizing for attention, what you're doing is you're optimizing for the things that hit most directly the bottom of the brainstem. That is the parts of our brains that are concerned with material desire and survival and threat detection and sex. And so what happens is platforms that are mathematically geared towards attention capture are also going to be mathematically geared towards the bottom of your brainstem. So there is therefore a financial incentive to keep you on the platform, to keep you viewing and purchasing things from the ads, to feed you things that make you feel uneasy, to feed you things that make you feel anxious, to, make you, to feed you things that make you feel outraged. And so this is where the attention economy really starts to become a problem for mental health and for society as a whole. Fake news travels six times faster than true news. And that's because filtering for what gives the most attention is not the same thing as filtering for truth. Because when you have a piece of fake news, like, hey, confirmation that the earth is flat or something like that, 
what's going to happen is you're going to have a whole bunch of people saying, nah, and then maybe commenting on how terrible the American education system is, yada, yada, yada. And then you'll, of course, have a zealous minority that's very loud and say, no, the earth definitely is flat. Uh, B.O.B. took a plane and he saw a flat earth, and, you know, and this whole thing. Um, and it can go on for all kinds of different things. And so uh, what happens is, is the things that get you irritated, the things that get you pissed off, the things that get you anxious, those are the things that are continually going to be in your feed. And by the way, as a Christian, this should have you really uneasy because the things that most easily capture your attention are generally the opposite of the things that guide you into living the patient and gracious kind of life that Jesus has called you into. And so you could say that the format of the platforms, I'm not talking about the content, the content's a whole other issue, but the format, the structure, the system of these platforms is discipling you and it's discipling you in the opposite of the way that we want Jesus to be discipling us. So let's take a look at a couple of headlines for an example. And by the way, this is how the problem of attention capture can escape the bounds of social media. So let's take a look at a couple of headlines. These are both ways of summarizing the same article that was published in 2017 in The Atlantic. The author, Jonathan Haidt, he wrote this article basically arguing that heavy smartphone usage is clinically correlated with negative mental health outcomes. That's an accurate summary of the article. But the editors of The Atlantic, not the author of the article, by the way, the editors of The Atlantic did this second, more attention-grabby headline called, Are Smartphones Ruining a Generation? And what this does is this is a tiny snippet of how the attention economy is starting to reorganize power in our world. See, the, the headline that's going to be more attention-grabby is always the one that the editors are going to prefer. And so what happens is now, journalists, just in order to be a good journalist, whether you're talking to an audience of social media people or not, you have to cater to the fact that everyone is probably receiving your news through an attention economy system. So you have to, just to survive, you have to push the most grabby, the most maybe biased, the most uh, attention-stealing version of the information, even if the reality is going to be a lot more complex and a lot more nuanced. And this, by the way, is how we end up with polarization getting more and more extreme. Because here's, here's a question. What's going to pull more attention from you? Is it the subtle, nuanced take on something that has, you know, a good amount of footnotes and endnotes to make sure that all the buts and what ifs are covered? No. The thing that's going to grab your attention is going to be the extreme thing. It's going to be the defund all the police or stop the steal. It doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum. There is going to be a tilt. There is going to be an incentive towards radicalizing wherever you are. Left, right, centrist doesn't matter. There is a drift, a gentle but firm drift towards a more extreme version of wherever you land. And so now, because all of us have these customized feeds, we're all getting these personalized worldviews that cater to our biases, that don't encourage us to think about what we might be wrong about, except when someone is performatively doing so, also for attention. 
And so what happens is we have this place where we're all just so much more feisty and more prone to be angry with each other. And it's like, can't you see the reality that I see? And the reality is actually, no, the other person can't because not, that's not what their social media feed is feeding them. And this is how we get to the other half of Jaron Lanier's acronym, bummer acronym, Empire for Rent. See, here's the thing about empires. Empires are generally too big to assert control directly. For example, in the Roman Empire, which yes, I do think about the Roman Empire pretty often, uh, the Roman Empire had this phenomenon called the imperial cult. Basically, pretty statues of the emperor. You might have some like Greek and Roman gods around it. You'd have some cool temples, that kind of thing. The emperors did not send out decrees being like, there shall be a statue of me in every city. No, 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 no. They had, I don't know, they were too busy running around like dodging assassinations or something like that. But what would happen is you would have a wealthy local elite, uh, someone from who was a well-to-do person within a city, a well-to-do person within a province would be like, you know what? I can tell which way the wind is blowing and it's blowing in the favor of anyone the emperor likes. So what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna build him a statue and then when he comes and visits, he's gonna do me some favors. And so what happens is in the Roman Empire, the power would move not directly through like this oppressive sort of do this or else type of thing, but by the reorganization of the way everybody went about their business. And that's the way that social media has sort of become an empire for rent there's been no conquests in the name of like meta or bite dance or whatever, but power has been reorganized. The way people interact with their world and with each other is always tilted towards the more extreme versions of things. And so for the rest of our time together, I want us to think about social media as a kind of empire in our lives because like it or not, it is reorganizing the flow of power in our world and it is doing in a way that will influence each and every one of us. So I want us to look at social media as a kind of empire for two reasons. Number one is that it's accurate because of the way power is being reorganized in our world around the attention economy. That's reason number one. And the reason number two is that it is going to unlock for us how the Bible can speak into it. See, there is nothing in the biblical world that approximates the technology that makes social media possible. But one of the things about the Bible is that across its story from Exodus through to Revelation, God's people are in some way being defeated or occupied or harassed or in some way oppressed by a larger, mightier empire. In fact, it's core to the point of the Bible is that it's a long and influential history that in fact is not written by the victors. So let's take a look at a short chart. This is a list of the empires that God's people deal with across biblical history. There's a lot of them, as you can see. I'm not going to go into every one of them, but I want us to know that empire is behind almost the whole Bible. And therefore, when we're looking at realities in our world that are shaped kind of like empires, the Bible actually does have a lot to say. And so I want to go into one of the more pointed parts of the Bible that talks about that, and that is the book of Daniel. It contains a series of stories of things that happened during Babylonian occupation, 
The final form of the book probably was obtained sometime under Greek or Seleucid rule after that, and the authors of the New Testament would look to Daniel to try to make sense of how they could interact with the Roman Empire being around them. So with that, we're going to take a look at Daniel chapter 1. Now here's what's going on in Daniel chapter 1. Israel is in exile, okay? So Babylon has swept through, conquered the area. They burned Jerusalem to the ground. And now Babylon's going to do that thing that they do with conquered peoples where they try to reculturate them. So what they do is they take the most promising young up-and-comers and try to make them into purveyors of Babylonian culture. They want these young up-and-comers to be singing Babylonian hymns and so forth instead of the ones from their home countries. And so this is where Daniel and his friends are. And so part of that journey is being invited into the king's court and eating probably some of the best food that could have possibly existed in the 6th century BC. This is Daniel 1.5. The king assigned them, this is Daniel and his friends, a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And then, of course, Daniel is like, "Uh, eating Babylonian food? No, I don't want to be doing that. I don't want that to be running my life. So we have Daniel 1.8. Daniel resolved that he wouldn't defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that the king drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs, that is like the royal court guy around, to allow him not to defile himself. So Daniel just basically straight up says no. And he ends up in the lion's den for it, right? Well, not at all, actually. That's like five chapters later. Instead, we get verse 9. Let's see here. Let's back up. Do we have verse 9 somewhere? Anyway, um, what happens in verse 9 is uh, God blesses Daniel in this moment where Daniel is not actually going to be forced into eating the king's food. Here we have verse 9. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Now let's see with that next verse. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I'm, I'm just afraid for my life. I fear the Lord King who assigned you your food and your drink. Uh, he might see that you were in worse condition and then it would be off with my head. And so Daniel is like, okay, this is actually a solvable problem. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a little test. Let's move over to Daniel 1.12. I'm really putting our slide guy through the ringer. Uh, He's doing great. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So here's what happens. Daniel is given this opportunity to eat amazing food and wine, but he recognizes that all of this comes with the baggage of being part of a program that's supposed to erase my memory of my God and my people and my home country. So I don't want to participate in it. Let me do an alternative. And then, of course, what happens? What do you know? Vegetables are healthy for you. Who'd have thunk it? And so what happens at the end of the 10 days... Daniel and his buddies, they're actually looking swoller than the people who have been eating all the red meat. And then what happens, because Daniel and his friends chose an alternative practice, what happens is they then become elites in the king's court and start subverting Babylonian rule from within. Now, there's a couple of things within this that I think are going to help us figure out how do we deal with the realities of empire for rent all around us. First is that this story can help us see that what an empire projects as a good thing is probably not going to be a great thing for us. I am sure that the king's food and meat was going to be wonderful, 
but it came at the expense of remembering Judea and Judea's God. In the same way, our social media feeds, they sell us on connection and on being informed. And maybe all of these things are fine. Maybe the content of your social media feed is fine. Maybe it's not really all that bad. The problem is that it comes as part of a system that exists at the expense of your mental and emotional health, treating your time not as something to be managed by you, but as a resource to be extracted for financial gain. Maybe the protein numbers in that meat that theoretically would have made Daniel and his buddies swole, maybe that wasn't really the point of it. Maybe having the right number of likes and followers just isn't the point. Maybe that's actually not the path to satisfaction. And so for us, I think we have a call to embrace an alternative mode of practice. I think if we think of digital media as a kind of empire, then what we need to be doing is figuring out where are our social vegetables and how can we be eating those? Social vegetables are interactions that don't follow the rules that the attention economy optimizes for. Social vegetables is honest, vulnerable conversation instead of projecting a curated self. Social vegetables are when you talk slowly and have painstaking interactions where you really get to know the person in front of you instead of this quick broadcast mode to a wide swath of people. Social vegetables is loving people instead of uh, trying to manipulate people in whatever ways are optimized for you. Social vegetables is instead of clicking like, you actually come up with thoughts and sentences, and then you say those to that person. Social vegetables is seeing the humanity of the person across from you when you disagree about something, even something that really matters, instead of escalating into the kind of rap battle that social media debates turn into. Now, you can have your social vegetables over your digital media platforms. You could just be like, I'm never going to click like. If I see a picture of someone's baby, then I slide into their DMs and say, hey, your baby is really cute. I'm really happy for your life. Uh, do you need a free babysitter? That would be an amazing choice to do. Um, but it's kind of tough. It goes against the rules. It's an uphill climb. It's like going to McDonald's and ordering a salad. Like, okay, you can do it. But it's just sort of a weird thing to do. And so what we want is we want to find alternative ways of practice. The second thing that this short story from Daniel can help us see is that God is behind us in helping our alternative practices subvert the rule of these empires that are operating against our best good. See, we can have a community where we follow rules that don't where we, can, where we don't have to follow the rules of the attention economy because of what unites us in Jesus. And what unites us in Jesus can help us become the kind of people who don't play by those optimized, those broadcast, those attention economy, those, those meanness-enhancing kind of rules. We can accept people who think differently from us because Jesus first accepted us. We can disagree with people gracefully because while we were still not just ideological, but literal enemies, Christ died for us when we were steeped in all of our unrighteousness. 
We can resist polarization because what unites us is more important than what divides. We can be patient and we can have those slow-moving, non-optimized conversations with people because God is first patient with us. And what if, what if we could build a community that was founded on social vegetables that was founded on taking seriously the way that our relationship with Jesus alters all our other relationships. What if we could do that and we could fundamentally change the appeal of interactions in the attention economy world? What if people didn't feel the need to go to digital media for all their social friendships and connections because the face-to-face connections were actually enough? What if those feisty rap battles that people get into and they disagree about things, what if it was plain and obvious how absurd that is because we had the capacity for a gentle disagreement? What if we didn't feel like we constantly needed to curate ourselves to fit some kind of attention-grabbing mold because we knew the people around us know us fully and love us anyway, just like the God who died for us? At its very best, our church, our Christian community is a cornucopia of social vegetables. We have tons of programs that are built to give us those kinds of life-giving face-to-face conversations. Just this coming Tuesday, if you're a guy, you can come and you can have probably not literal vegetables, but a lot of social vegetables because you'll be able to connect with a bunch of other men, have some great, well-guided conversations, and you're going to get to see the humanity and the brotherhood of the man in front of you. And then if you're a woman, Generations is just a couple couple Tuesdays after that. We have community groups starting this week, and that is a wonderful place where we together can practice the art of becoming the kind of people who interact with each other from that place of love, who know one another fully and love anyway, the way Jesus did for us. The worship team, look, Serving teams around here are great sources of community. Uh, when I was uh, participating with the worship team and they were doing their work, making me appear to be a way better musician than I am, I mean, that was a wonderful experience because they really take seriously the importance of building community with one another. They took time away from the rehearsal to just sit down and have a dinner, which by the way, did have literal vegetables in it, and then share testimonies and talk about and pray for one another and talk about what God is doing in their lives. But the thing is, it's not just the programs that do that. Programs can come and go. What creates the possibility for a church to give that kind of community and in fact, to be ahead of, not behind the technological trends in our world, what gives us that capacity is the fact that we all hear week in and week out the good news of the gospel. The relationship with Jesus that sets all other relationships right. See, one of the strange realities about social media is it represents this attempt for us as humankind to become more and more godlike with our technological aspirations. And yet what has happened is the attention economy enhances the side of us that is most animalistic. 
This try to be godlike makes us more animalistic, but here's the weird thing about Jesus. Jesus was equal with God, and yet he emptied himself of all of the perks of divinity, becoming a lowly human being like us, and became obedient to death on a cross, which, by the way was an imperial technology of humiliation. He got under the foot of empire and therefore ended up subverting it. And what happened is Jesus, by descending from divinity, manages to raise us from the kinds of impulses that our animal sides drag us into. God responds to the concrete mechanistic structures of human power, not by imposing some bigger superstructure, but by being buried in the earth like a seed. And the way of God is not installing high-tech metropolises, but in fact is planting gardens and all of the patient and slow-moving flourishing that comes with it. This is the way of the God that we worship. And as we practice ways of interacting each other, with each other that are built on that reality, what we can do is we can subvert the problems that the attention economy builds for all of us. Now, I realize that in all of this, I've covered a ridiculous amount of ground. I'm a little bit over time on the sermon, so I'm gonna invite you into a few things that can follow up on that. First of all, we have Empowering Parents next week, uh, which happens to have the same name as a certain documentary that wasn't on purpose, but anyway, it works out. Um, so next Sunday, from 11 to 12.30, I'm going to be leading a seminar that can work our families through the, through the process of deciding what are some intentional practices in our family life that we all can adopt together that will help us mitigate the effects of the attention economy on our lives. So that's Empowering Parents. It's happening next week. Uh, you can go to the, uh, the kids page of the CrossroadsABC.com website to sign up for that. Uh, and then the next thing I want to invite you into is, look, if you are here for the first time and you're meeting Jesus for the first time, or maybe you're meeting Jesus all over again for the first time, and you're thinking, you know, there's, I wonder, can this Jesus be the relationship that sets all other relationships right? If you're curious about that, if you're questioning that, you can go ahead and text Jesus to this number, 720-513-1933. We've got a lot of folks who would love to be able to have a conversation with you about that. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, close this in prayer. God, thank you for these amazing people. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the beauty that you are nurturing with every single person and for creating a place where we can gather again and again and again to see the humanity of the people across from us. God, I pray that that you would teach us and shape us to become the kinds of people who aren't shackled by the chains of an attention economy and manipulative technology. I pray that you would help us see that the slow moving way that you've planted with all of us really has what it takes to be enough and to be satisfying for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we arrive at the part of our service where we take communion. This is a strange and ancient ritual in the church. And it reminds us that our faith is not this ethereal thing about a God who sits far and distant from us, but in fact, it is strangely and uniquely and viscerally embodied. The broken body of Jesus 
that, we, that is represented with bread that we eat, this reminds us that Jesus' physical body was broken for us. So we take and eat of this together. And the wine that represents Jesus' blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, it reminds us that we are also people of grace who can treat others with that same grace we have received. If you could stand up and get ready to worship the living God. And if you need prayer from someone on the prayer team, we have that prayer banner over there and you can have a great face-to-face conversation with someone.